morning is that, that God is at work in the midst of the mess of our lives. That God is here to help us through these things, to teach us that it's in Him that we find purpose and meaning, and that even in the midst of, and I don't know what your circumstances are this morning, but even in the midst of very painful, very difficult, very challenging circumstances, God is at work and He's trying to show us His mercy and His goodness and that He can be trusted. So I don't know if you uh, kind of follow church calendar stuff, uh, but as you've kind of come into this last week of which is traditionally called Holy Week, uh, I don't know if you had a chance to kind of talk about Good Friday, about the reason why it's called good even though Jesus dies. And, and our church, unfortunately, didn't have a Good Friday service this year, and so, so I decided that we're going to just lump them together Sunday morning is we're going to look at the importance of Jesus' death, why the cross matters, what its purpose was. But we're going to do that from a broader perspective than maybe just these verses that we're going to read this morning. So I want to take us on a little bit of a journey. We're going to call it the Old Testament in five minutes. I don't know if we can do that possibly, but we're going to try. In the beginning pages of the Bible is God creates all things. And we kind of read the order of, of how he creates, and, and mankind is created kind of as that, the pinnacle in his creation. Humanity created in the image of God, which was unique amongst all creation. You see, man was given the responsibility to rule and to steward the earth on God's behalf, not for our own selfish interests, but so that God would receive glory and honor. But if you've read the first couple of pages of the Bible, you know that it goes south real quick. Is Adam and Eve, the first two humans that are created, God uh, puts them in this perfect garden and, and says, you can eat of anything and you can kind of live within the freedom of this garden, but there's this one tree and it's called uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, I alone get to determine what is good and evil because I created you. And so I know better than you. And so don't eat of that tree. And, and what we see them do is Adam and Eve kind of are, are, are tempted by the serpent who kind of represents Satan. And, and they're tempted into this idea of, did, did God really say that? Can God actually be trusted? Or is God holding out on you? And see, here's the thing. And, and if you've had children, maybe you know this to be true is you can give them all the good gifts that you want, but the one thing that's going to cause them pain and strife, they tend to gravitate there, don't they? The stove is on, and you say, don't touch that. That's going to hurt you. Everything else is safe. And they go, huh, hang on, let me check. Are you holding out on me? Is it actually going to be something really good that, that you don't want me to know about? And that's the kind of image that we have, is, is God is a good God who has given us wonderful gifts but he's given us those gifts within the context, within the framework of something that he says, here's what's good and here's what's wrong. Well, Adam and Eve decide that God's holding out on them and that, that tree is actually something they should be part of and God doesn't want them to be. And so they go and they eat of that tree and immediately consequence comes to the world. First of all, the, the humans, Adam and Eve, are taken out of the garden. They can no longer live with God in the garden because they have now broken his, his promises to us. And there's consequence for that. And one of those is a separation from God. 
Another one of those problems uh, that we see is, well, this is from Romans, is the wages of sin is what? We were never created to die. We were created to live with God for forever. But God had said, if you eat of that tree in the day that you do, you will die. And God, being a God of his word, honors that promise, even though we might look at that and say that's unfair. But if God didn't honor his word, then would God be just? And so we struggle with that. But, but the good news is that even in the midst of, of being taken out of the garden in Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy of, of salvation, what this is going to look like, uh, let me say it this way, is that God was unwilling for us to die alone in our sin. He was always planning right from the beginning that he was going to make a way for us to come back to himself. But there's something that I want to talk about here for just a few minutes that is really, really important. And it's this idea of sin nature. Because we might read the beginning pages of the Bible and go, okay, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they did what was wrong. What does that have to do with me? Well, according to Scripture, just like... Think of it this way, just like you are a byproduct of your biological parents' various traits, maybe your eye color, maybe your facial features, or your height, or whatever it might be, is this idea of sin passed down from Adam and Eve affects our hearts as well. And, and this is not something you have to believe me for, this is what Scripture says in, in Psalm 14, verse 3. They have turned aside, together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Mankind as a whole, the heart is corrupt. And, and we can say it's not, but the longer you work with people, the more you see that that's just a reality. The longer, maybe you, again, go back to the children analogy. Is Man, if you're going to parent well, You've got to teach about a million times what the right and the good and the healthy things are to do. And you don't even have to teach them what's the wrong thing to do, and yet they gravitate towards that. And we can point, you know, at children and say, well, it's, it's you know, they, they aren't mature and they don't understand. Well, what if maybe, let's think of it this way, is you ever had an argument with your spouse? Maybe just one or two, right? Usually, who's the issue in the argument? It's usually my own heart. If Shayla corrects me on something, sometimes my own sin nature puffs up and I go, she has no right to correct me because she has her own problems. What, are her, what does that have to do with anything? Is if she said, Greg, that wasn't loving or, or that wasn't kind, what you did there, what should my response be? Immediately it should be apology. Immediately it should be to try to make things right, not defend myself. The older you get, maybe the more that's clear in other people, but maybe we're not as clear of that in our own selves. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, corruption came into our hearts, and those, those hearts, my heart and your heart, are filled with that right from the beginning of our lives to the end. David says it this way in Psalm 51, verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. Or if we want to use a more modern translation, the NIV says it this way, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. Sin is already a part of us immediately from when we're born. 
And that's terrible news. The good news is coming, don't worry. But the reality is, and we say this all the time here in churches, the good news isn't so good if we don't realize just how bad the bad news is. Here's the deal, is as we read through the Old Testament, as we read about the Israelites coming out of slavery and God planning to give them a land of hope and future, is they continually go, I don't think God's ways are the best ways. I think my ways are the best ways. And so they choose their own way to do things, and it always comes with unfortunate consequences where they essentially get handed over to the realities of the decisions that they're going to make. And the whole Old Testament, we see God offering grace and mercy and, and kind of coming in and saving the day only for them to go, thank you, that was good, but I'm still going to do my own way. And this happens to us over and over and over again. And here's the problem is, because I have a sin nature, there's nothing that I can do to get right with God. That relationship in the garden that was completely fractured, that was broken because of sin, is broken in my heart too, and there's nothing that I can do to fix that. And so we might look at this and we say, man, why would God create us if he's only going to allow us to sin and fracture that relationship so that we can never be with him again? It doesn't seem like a very loving thing to do. But the rest of the pages of Scripture are all showing us that God wasn't satisfied with that, but that he was always going to bring someone who the Old Testament refers to as the Messiah, someone who would come and who would redeem our relationship with God. And so this is this, where this idea of sin nature becomes so important. Charles Spurgeon once said sin nature in this regard. He said, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. Sin has grabbed a hold of me and has essentially enslaved me the same way that the Hebrew people were enslaved by the Egyptians. But as the story of the Old Testament continues, God continues to show there's going to be someone who comes who will be able to deal with that, who will restore humanity and God's relationship. And, and we're kind of left wondering, oh, how could this be? Because if every human being born has a sin nature and they can't save themselves, then how can somebody become my mediator and save me? Well, this is the importance of what we celebrate every year at Christmas time. This is going to sound crazy, and I, I think it's probably because it is crazy. It's completely outside of logical reason. It's divine intervention of God making a way where there was not one. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, written 700 years before the Messiah came to the earth, says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. That word Emmanuel literally means God with us. God was promising that the Messiah would come not born of natural means. And why is that important? Well, that's important because now it's not a, a, a mom and a dad who have sin nature that pass on that sin nature to a child, but now God goes, no, it's going to be an immaculate conception, we've said in the past, or, or a miraculous birth, one that defies all logic and understanding. And that sounds crazy. 
And so it sounds crazy when you go, man, as a Christian, we hold to this doctrine. We hold to this reality that there was one who came that was born completely apart from natural ways. But on the same token, doesn't it just make perfect sense? Is if the only way for God to redeem mankind was to provide some kind of a miracle, then that's what he chose to do. In Luke 1, we read about an angel appearing to Mary and saying that God was going to use her in a miraculous way, that she was about to give birth to a baby who would save his people from their sins. In fact, the first four books of the New Testament all focus on Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Those four books we call the Gospels, and the Gospel literally simply means the good news. And that's what we come to celebrate every Easter is that there is one piece of good news that changes life for every single person on this earth. This isn't just good news that we should remind ourselves of occasionally. As Jerry Bridges says, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Now, you might have this argument thinking, okay, you're going through this and Jesus is born and and he's born miraculously. And even if we can accept that, okay, strange, but okay, maybe that's possible and, and, and God did it that way. Well, of course he didn't sin because he didn't have a sin nature, so big deal. Well, except the page one of the Bible was about Adam and Eve, isn't it? And they didn't have a sin nature either. Not until they sinned. And so we read many times uh, throughout Scripture that Jesus um, was tempted in every way that we were. That he can understand every feeling that you have of temptation. Every time where you feel like being selfish or where you feel like blowing up at somebody or where you feel like you deserve something that someone else has. Every time those things are there is that Jesus understand what that's like. The only difference between me and you is that he chose to honor God rather than himself. And so I want to read to you from Matthew 26 an example of that so that we can see Jesus' humanity in the reality that he suffered temptation the same way that we did, but why him refusing to submit or give in to that gives us hope. So this is Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, he felt the reality of what he was going through. And he knew he was about to give his life in the most barbaric way possible, And the pain and the hurt and the anxiety of all of that was welled up within him. And so, yes, God, could you please make some other way, but not my will, yours be done. I wish that I could say that that's how usually I deal with temptation. The problem is usually I only realize that I've given into it after the fact where I got angry, where I said something hurtful, where I did something wrong. 
And according to Scripture, whenever those kinds of things happen, is all I'm doing is I'm condemning myself, showing that I cannot earn my own salvation. But what we celebrate Good Friday is, is Jesus was willing to do for us what we could not. And so if you flip the page to, or maybe two pages to chapter 27, verse 32, we see that Jesus has been arrested, he's been tried, and he's, he's being essentially dragged out to be crucified on a cross. And so in verse 32, we read this. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right side and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now what's amazing to me in that text is that all the accusations they fling at him show that they don't understand what's happening. Could Jesus have saved himself from the cross? Certainly. But is that why he came? He came to die on the cross. And we're going to talk about this in Exodus in the coming weeks. But this whole idea of, of the sacrificial system that blood had to be shed for sin was ultimately always pointing to that one day the perfect blood of Jesus would be shed for our sins. So that he could become our mediator. He, with no sin, could pay the penalty for me and for you of our sin so that we could be in relationship with him once again. And so they can yell at him all they want. They can say, man, you can, you can save others, but you can't save yourself. And Jesus goes, exactly. I am about to save everyone. But not the way that you expect. See, this is a reality in all of our lives. Because God doesn't do things that we expect very often. God doesn't work in ways that, that we want. And I said this at the beginning, as if God worked in the way that I want, I'd have a lot of money in my bank account. I'd have a lot of possessions. I'd have a lot of fill in the blank with whatever you want. Because I'm so focused on, on the physical, the here and the now, and the blessings that I consider uh, relevant, forgetting that there's one blessing and only one blessing that I really need for all of eternity. And that's to be with Jesus. And so nothing else, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful it is, compares with the goodness of Jesus, as Paul would say. Now again, let me clarify, that doesn't mean for one second that I'm saying your circumstances don't matter or that they aren't painful or that they don't hurt. What I am saying is that it's worth it to persevere through that because what comes one day is greater than anything we could hope for. 
Jesus hanging on the cross, being insulted, being told all these accusations against him, you can only wonder and put yourself in his mind going, not only am I dying for the sins of those who love me, I'm dying for the sins of those who are yelling at me and who are accusing me. Again, here's the difference between Jesus and me. And Paul says it this way, is we might dare to die for a righteous man. If you have a friend, someone that you care for, someone that you love, you might stand in front of that person to take a bullet for them. But for those who hate you, for those who treat you with contempt, for those who want to see you fail, for those that are angry, would we still do the same? So Jesus died in our place. In, in kind of theological terms, we call this substitutionary atonement. Jesus took the place of us and atoned us of our sins. He forgave us of all of our sin. He took the penalty of all of that, and so now we have the opportunity to go and to be with him. And so we lead up to this Good Friday where we see this, this, this awful, horrific death of one who did not deserve to die, but one who was willing to die on our behalf so that we wouldn't have to. Now let me be real clear here. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that physically we're not going to die. It means though I die, yet I live. But this was not the full plan of God's salvation, not yet. And this is what we celebrate this morning. Is Jesus didn't just go to the cross to die for our sins so that they could be atoned for, so that our relationship with God could be, could be restored here on the earth. His end goal was much, much bigger than that. And so just as impossibly Jesus came to the earth through a virgin birth, just as impossibly he rose from the dead. Jesus atoned for our sins, but he conquered death. He rose in this moment where, where Satan probably thought, I've triumphed, I've killed the Messiah. Jesus rises again and he goes, well, that was only act one. There's a whole other piece to come. So if you flip the page again to chapter 28, we read this following Jesus' death. Verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. Here it is, verse 6. He is not here for what? He is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you, he's going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Again, impossible, 
completely illogical, but God's plan from the beginning. This means that not only are your sins atoned for, not only are my sins atoned for, but if that we accept the gift of salvation that God is freely offering to us, that we will be with him for all of eternity, restoring the Garden of Eden back to the way it was intended to be. Or as Revelation 21 verse 4 says, He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither, there sh- neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In one of our Bible studies a couple of weeks ago, we were going through Romans chapter 10. And as we were watching the video, the teacher noted something that, that has really sat with me. He said that no one is too far away from being saved. In fact, all they are is confessing. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And so that puts us all on the same playing field, regardless of how far you perceive yourself to be from God. You might be sitting here thinking, man, like God would never forgive me of all the things that I've done. But that's what the cross is all about. If Jesus can forgive the very person who put him up on the cross and drove nails into his hands and his feet and who stabbed him in the side with a spear, then can't he forgive you? There's two things that says that we need to do and and, and all that we need to do. This isn't, you know, pledge all your money to the church and then we'll buy you a seat in heaven. That's not how it works. Is all you need to do is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? Simply means that Jesus is become he's become the most important thing in your life. That Jesus is Lord of all lords. That means the way that we live, the way that we talk, the way that we act, everything that we do is filtered through this lens of I want to honor Jesus with my life. It doesn't mean that we live perfectly. By no means. Just ask my wife. Just ask your kids. We still make mistakes. We still do things that are wrong. We still need to confess. But what it does mean is that I'm no longer, I no longer have to pay the penalty for my own sin because I'm accepting that Jesus did that on my behalf. It's as if when I stand before God at the judgment day and God looks at me and he sees this sinful creature, he sees Jesus step in front of me and Jesus' righteousness overshadows me. And according to the scriptures, again, miraculously, I am then declared righteous before God. Not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done for me. So we confess Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that as crazy as it sounds that God raised him from the dead. Now here's the thing. Two thousand years ago all of this happened. So what now? Well this is the greatest news that exists. You now, if you've confessed Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that God has brought you onto his 
team to partner with him to give you purpose and meaning for the rest of your life. When I talk with people who, who don't know the story of the Gospels, one of the biggest things that they struggle with is, I don't know what my purpose is in life. What am I supposed to do? What's that one ultimate thing that I'm supposed to accomplish? And sometimes they have a career that they put all of kind of that motive, that intention behind, but just like every career, what happens? Eventually, you have to retire from it. Just like any one thing you put all of your hope in, you find that that leaves you feeling empty, going, that, that, that can't be it. But for the person who's confessed Jesus, for the Christian, they go, I have one purpose now, and it is to glorify and honor God with my life. God has called me to be part of something so much bigger than myself is that I get to go and I get to share the message of Jesus with people and I get to love them unconditionally, even, even though I may disagree with a lot of what they do or say. And I can point them to there is someone who has come and paid your penalty so that you can be with God forever because God was unwilling for you to go to eternity apart from him. Friends, this is how much God loves you and how much God loves me. Peter asks at one point in the scripture, he, he says to Jesus, he's like, how many times should I forgive my neighbor who sins against me? And according to kind of Hebrew tradition, it was kind of three was the kind of magic number. As long as you forgave someone three times, then if they wronged you again on the fourth, you could kind of wash your hands and go, I'm done with you. And so Peter, thinking to be really generous, going, I'm learning from you, Jesus. I'm going to be extra forgiving up to seven times. And Jesus says, no, not seven. Seventy times seven. And again, the, the number is not important. What he's trying to say is that just as I, Peter, am about to forgive you on the cross of everything that you ever, have ever done, is you are to offer that same mercy and that same grace. So when we make Jesus Lord of our lives, our whole life should change in what we do and how we live and in how we interact with one another. We want to be a church that does two things. We want to love God and we want to love people. And when we do that and when we show them who Jesus is, our hope and our prayer is that they will recognize and say there's something different there that I need. Because we live with hope and we live with purpose, and here's what's even more important. We live with a guarantee that we will get to live with Jesus for eternity. There's no greater thing. And so as we close this morning, we're going to take communion together. And, and I just want to explain this to you if you've never kind of seen what this is all about, just so that you understand. Is there's a section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians, that says this. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now Jesus was preparing his disciples for what they didn't quite yet understand. 
But this, we, we call this an ordinance. This is something to be passed down that we regularly, Christians, come together and we remember that Jesus died on the cross for our sins because I need that gospel preached to me every day. I need to approach God with humility because when I approach God with humility, I'll approach others with humility. That when I remember that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that that suddenly means that I'm no better than anybody else and I'm no more deserving than anybody else. And then when we drink the cup, which represents Jesus' blood that was spilled for us, we're remembering that that sacrifice was made for you and I, but not not just for our sin to be dealt with but to be awaiting that one day Jesus is coming again. Again, sounds crazy, another miracle. It's a reality that the scriptures teach. Is Jesus is going to come again and take his church, those of us who have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, he's going to take us to be with him for all of eternity. And so in our tradition, in our church here, once a month we gather around the communion table, we pass this out, and we just hold it in our hands and we allow the reality of that situation, the humility that should come into our hearts, and we go, Lord, thank you that you, in the Garden of Gethsemane, were willing to do the Father's will. That you were willing to go to the cross, that your body was broken so that I might have life. That your blood was spilled so that my sin could be atoned for. But also that you rose again so that I have hope from now until the end. So I just want to invite the two, the two Randys, go figure, the two Randys up, and we're going to pass these things out. And I'm just going to pray uh, a little prayer over them. And there'll just be some music that's just going to be playing in the moments while, while it's being passed out. And then when everyone has it, then I'll come back up front and we'll eat and we'll drink together. As a sign of humility, re- reminding ourselves that it's only through Jesus' death and it's through his resurrection that we have hope. So let's pray. God, as we pass out the bread this morning, as we use this symbol that you have told us about to demonstrate to us that your body was broken for us, God, may we remember a couple of things in that. May, may we remember that there's nothing that we can do to earn salvation. But even more importantly, Jesus became our mediator so that we could be saved even though there's nothing that we can do about it. As we hold in our hands in these moments this little cracker representing your body, would you just remind us of what it means? Would you cause us to reflect on our own hearts and our own lives, to ask the question, have I confessed that Jesus is Lord? And do I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead? Because if I do believe that, then Scripture teaches that I will get to be with you for all of eternity. There is no greater news that we could possibly celebrate than that. So be with us in these moments. Help us to look at our hearts. Help us to examine ourselves. And to ask whether we have confessed Jesus as Lord.
Amen.